Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today, we welcome Ron Carucci. Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent. Working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. He's the author of nine books, including the Amazon number one, Rising to Power, and the recently released, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. He contributes to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and is a two-time TEDx speaker. Ron, welcome to the show. Anthony, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. So why don't we just start off, take a few minutes and give us a little bit of a uh, backstory on your career and kind of all these things that led up to your your work with Navalent, which you've obviously been doing for, for quite a while, and nine books, nine books, which we will definitely talk about because I am in awe of anyone who could write more than one book because I did one and I'm like, nope, never again, not doing it. So we'll cover that in a little bit, but let's let's understand your background and, and we'll kind of take it from there. Well, I, so I've been doing at this for a long time, you know, 30 plus years working with organizations. Um, and I think, you know, I, as a kid, I was always fascinated by the, the organization of human endeavor. I always thought it was fascinating that you could bring people together to do something um, that they couldn't do on their own. You know, and so I was always the one, whether it was organizing a local stickball game or helping with a school event or teams, it was just always been a natural fascination for me, which I think led me to my work in organizations. Um, and I spent most of my early career inside big organizations um, trying to do the same kind of work. Um, I learned that you, there's a whole set of political skills that um, you needed to have to do this work as an insider, which I, I fantastically lacked. And so, uh, you know, upon a very impressive collection of severance packages, began to realize, you know, if I'm going to have to live out my passion for organizations is probably going to have to be by not being part of one. And so left and joined the consulting world and then realized, gosh, the same behaviors that got me in trouble inside get me paid really well outside. So I think this is probably the better place to do this work from and spent some years with a, you know, eight or nine years with a wonderful consulting firm in New York city. And then a few of us left and started Navalin 17 years ago. And and Navalent's, I mean, a known organization. This is a, a company that's grown quite a bit. Um, can you talk about what that journey has been like in being you know, part of a founding team in the entrepreneurial side of consulting, growing a business and consulting? Do you even get to do the work that you love to do while you're building a business to do the work that you love? Well, to do? and that's been a great conundrum for us because none of, we when we left, we love those of us who love to start Navalent love this work. We are passionate about the art and science of, of leadership and change uh, and organizational systems. And so we never said, let's go start a firm. We never said, let's go grow a firm. We said, let's go do this work together because we love each other and we love this work and that changes the work. Um, but over time we realized we needed capacity. And so we've ebbed and flowed in capacity, both you know, with employees or uh, an affiliate network. Um, but we've never given up the work ourselves because that's what we love. If we, none of us ever wanted to run a firm. We were the, the most accidental entrepreneurs there ever were. Um, and so it's always been a conundrum for capacity and scaling because we can scale what we do in terms of replicating the skill set, replicating the kinds of relationships you build. 
replicating the kinds of data we you know pride ourselves on collecting but we don't want to leave that hundreds of people so we've always been a boutique firm because mm -hmm. this was built for us so and and clearly now much of your career is around thought leadership and the content that you're creating through uh, the written word especially but in speaking and, and all of that can you rewind like back to when you first decided you know i'm gonna write and and create that first book or or, or start doing that because you you create this kind of leverage by doing these things that you're teaching others how to do them and and they're going to be able to to take and and amplify what you would be able to do just directly one-on-one -on -one consulting or coaching an, an executive team. I want to understand what was it like at the beginning and what is it like now? And is it the same or different or, or what have you learned through becoming as prolific as you've been in creating all of this, this work? So I, what I can say, Anthony, is I was, you know, whenever I, when I started writing 22 years ago, um, it wasn't really as a, with the intention of being a thought leader or that mm -hmm. I, or with any understanding of thought leadership leading to broaden my consulting work. It was because my clients had problems or I was seeing problems in the world for which I had no answers. And I, and so writing for me is a way of learning. It's a way to go out and sort of immerse myself into questions that clients may ask me one day and I want to be able to answer them. It wasn't really until about surprisingly only about six years ago, that I began to realize, wow, and, and I think on the heels of a, of a desperately proliferating marketplace of, you know, just oodles and oodles of people on, on, running onto the field to play as consultants and coaches. I mean, you can go to JCPenney and get certified as a coach now. Like it's, you know, I mean, that's how, how badly credentialed and badly prepared many of these practitioners are. But the problem is that, that that's now the, the defined marketplace. It's no longer the marketplace that I began my career in different set of rules, different set of selection criteria from a very um, far less informed buying uh, set. So I, six, you know, we, we had a, a phenomenal network of, of, of clients and, and executives and CEOs who either referred us or took us along with them when they changed companies. But many of mine were beginning to exit. <clears throat> and I didn't have a, a fresh set behind them. So I had to realize that I, I, I had to rebuild that pipeline of relationships in a very different way. And so I thought, okay, I will use thought, thought leadership to do that. The problem is I had no idea what to do. I, I mean, and I thought I did. Not only did I not know what to do, I was really clueless. The things that I thought I should do were the actual, actually the opposite of what I should do. So I hired a coach for me. I decided I need to take my own medicine and get help in this. And that's when I realized that you know, thought leadership can be an extremely powerful tool as a way to differentiate and invite people whose ideas, uh, whose needs will match your ideas. Uh, and began that journey only six years ago. So the platform that I have now is not a career long platform. It's all, and I'm still learning every day. I still don't, you know, I'm still skinning my knees and figuring out what it means to, you know, what the daggum Amazon algorithms are and how to, you know, try and maneuver them. So uh, it, it is a very powerful tool that, you know, basically you have to reverse engineer practice to wisdom, right? You have to look at the patterns you're seeing in the world and come and come back with, okay, what are the universal principles that I, others might benefit from if I were to try and share them? Uh, 
um, you know, from a data point of view, what's interesting, these last two books were based on a 10-year and a 15-year longitudinal study of, you know, one was 2,700 interviews and this last one was 3,200 interviews. Mm. Um, we had, we, I knew we were sitting on a Rembrandt the attic, this extraordinary set of, of data over the last 15, 20 years that now with the dawn of, of AI and, and big data technologies, you can actually mine that data for wisdom and insights. And so we did. Uh, for both longitudinal studies, we actually, you know, went back to our own treasure trove of insights uh, or of collected diagnostic data and uh, extracted extraordinarily powerful predictors of behavior and performance. Uh, and with very compelling, you know, um, you know, evidence around in this in the case of his last book, to be honest, under what conditions people will. Um, tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good and under what conditions they'll lie, cheat and serve their own interests first. So, you know, data has played a profoundly foundational role in, you know, how we do our work. It, and, and, and folks like this is the this is why we don't delete data. This is why we hold on to this stuff, because you don't know how the opportunities are going to manifest down the road and capabilities like what we have today weren't even predicted. Like we, we maybe had a notion that we were going to be able to do something like this someday, but like how we would actually put it to use. You can't always think about that when you're collecting and, and, and saving some of this data. It's not to say you should save everything, but like something that is as rich and unique as interviews that have been taking place over decade plus, there's some value in that. And it just may not yet be ready. It may not be ripe for the analysis because the tools haven't caught up. But these days, um, you know, there's a lot more capabilities than, than we once had, um, you know, not not in too far distant of a past. It's really amazing to see how much more we can get out of data that's been existing uh, for, for quite some time. I'd like to ask you, um, because I want to I want to spend most of the time talking about uh, your work in in thought leadership. But in the on the consulting side, I just have one more kind of I'm curious in in your experience, um, having done consulting for a long time and having had like a generational shift in your client base, like and how you've um, had to kind of reform how you went to market and, and continue to to grow those relationships and that business. One complaint I've had um, from from consultants that I know and, and have talked to on this show, one of the challenges is often like in consulting, while you get to understand how it should be done and, and can coach how it should be done, sometimes it can be frustrating that you don't get to see it all the way through or that clients may know exactly what they need to do and are, are for whatever reason, unable to execute either due to resources or to um, changing circumstances or what have you. Do you share that kind of frustration from, you know, sometimes feeling like you've got great ideas that just can't be implemented or how do you overcome that and make as big of an impact as possible through the work that you do in, in your, um, you know, consultative practices? Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's, there's no point in being frustrated over it, right? I think, you know, the, the world today is producing inf insights and information and data and, you know, perspectives at a far greater alarming rate than anybody could ever absorb them. So if any consultant feels like the, a level of pride of authorship over, why are you listening to me? You're, you shouldn't be in this field. If you have a need to have your advice solicited or heard, you shouldn't be advising anybody. 
because uh, mm. you're just doing it for the wrong reasons. Sure, we should all be rewarded with psychic energy for knowing that we've made a difference or that an idea or perspective we've shared, you know, helped change the course of somebody's decision-making or career. <clears throat> but if that's the outcome you're looking for, you know, so you just have to recognize that you're the side of a table that you're on, right? You, you, you should, you're both on the opposite side of a table from your clients as well as sitting next to them. And you have to hold that duality all the time. I have to often gauge when I'm with my clients, you know, when a suddenly a pattern will appear or a perspective will appear or dots will connect for me, I have to first calculate how many conversations away am I from them being able to ready to hear this? Because if we just mm. blurt out ideas or we share them indiscriminately, or we're so impressed with them that we just, you know, you know, blah, vomit them on our clients without tilling the ground, without earning our right, without making sure the trust base is there. Then we're just, you know, smart technicians. Um, and that's not what we're hired for. If you really are in the, in the business of being a trusted advisor and trusted being the key word, you have to build the relationship and the connection to those leaders that allows you the right to, you know, think about the kinds of sh perspectives or, or ideas you would share. And, but most importantly, when you would share them. Um, I learned through many mistakes early in my career that having a, a really profound insight about a client doesn't mean it's time to tell them that you have that insight. <clears throat> now we begin our, our, I mean, we bust down a lot of walls in the very beginning just by how we do our diagnostic. We extract data and perspectives and insights uh, at the beginning of every, it's like, a, it's like an MRI of the organization, you know? And so we come back with every, a client hears everything we heard. We don't filter it. We don't, we, we code it. The data is coded, but every voice you've sent out of the room is coming back in the room and you're going to hear everything we heard. You won't know who said it, but you get 80, 90, 100, 120 pages of, of narrative back. And we force it's, it's forced listening, right? You get to listen to the, the heart sets and mindsets and frustrations and, and, and dueling narratives of the organization you're leading uh, about each other, about you, about your future, about what you're working on. And from that basis, we can say, okay, the first job here is not for us to make sense of this data. The first job is that you have to make sense of it. Um, this is the story you're living in, whether it's the story you thought you were in or not. And we spent a day and a half in a room with leaders and their teams, <clears throat> having them mine that data and work that data purely for the psychological uh, process of ownership, of you, of you making sure you understand you own the story. We will come behind that with, here's our take. On this, we have a point of view based on comparing you to lots of other companies and what we think this is telling you, but we won't ever do that first. Most consultants come in and give you the answer, right? They're just study and recommend. We're not that firm. We're the ones that are going to raise the harder questions for you and make you own the story of the change ahead of you um, because change begins in the very first interview. It doesn't begin when we unveil a plan. The minute we stop poking around, you know, people are talking. Stuff's happening. Yeah. So um, by doing that, I have, I have then opened up a little bit of a wider door so that when I have points of view, the client has already opted into, I expect you to say hard things to me. I expect that not all, all the, everything you bring to me is going to be easy for me to absorb. Um, doesn't, doesn't excuse me from having to do a good job timing or, or, or calibrating how ready you are to hear something particularly painful 
or for me to challenge or poke you on a behavior or a choice that might really upend your view of the world or you know lead you to have to reframe something more discontinuously than you might otherwise have but from the outset of our relationship you will have become accustomed to the fact that i'm going to bring you information and data that's going to be unsettling and i tell my clients all the time i'm a surrogate you shouldn't need me to do this in the future you have to gauge your own leadership by, by a very simple metric. If you don't have somebody coming into your office on a regular basis saying things directly to you that make you uncomfortable, be very confident your leadership sucks because rest assured they're telling somebody. It might not be you, but you have to ask yourself, where is that information going? Because you need it. And whether it makes you comfortable or not is irrelevant. Um, it's critical to you making the choices you have to make to run your business. There's, there's, uh, it, it, there's so much here that um, I want to follow up on. Um, the uh, it, there's a threat because because I think it's clear to me, and and I'll and I'll just ask for your confirmation or, or clarification on. It, but it, it's clear to me that your work in writing in the books that you've uh, written come from this work that you do every day and the reflections that you have on doing it. I mean, I can see that, that direct tie in. Is that, is that a fair statement? Like that's mm -hmm. you, you wrote those books because of what you saw and I could kind of piece that together better now than I could 10 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, uh, and so given that he's, he's nodding for everyone who's just listening to the audio, he's nodding to, to, uh, to that point. So I'll keep going. Um, but the, uh, there's a thread here and, and I'm fascinated by like understanding the timing piece is a, is a function of, of strategy and change management and recognizing that being too harsh or being too um, uh, extreme too quickly can create fractures instead of a, a, a changing and a bending that is, is productive. But then there's also this tremendous threat around authenticity is the word that just keeps coming into my mind in every stretch. And I mean, if we look at, you know, your latest book, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose to me, authenticity is a subtext to all of that. Is that, I mean, I have to imagine that that's, that's an accurate statement as well. Well, I, um, I'm going to say yes with an asterisk, Anthony, um, okay. that word, you mean somebody of our, of our language today gets hijacked, um, and gets bastardized, you know, I, I have an understanding of what I think authenticity means in terms of genuineness. What I see is what I get. Uh, there's not another version of you lurking in the background somewhere. But you're seeing all these articles now on that you're seeing this backlash around uh, when you shouldn't be authentic, or um, sometimes you can be too authentic, or um, authenticity, authenticity doesn't always serve you well. And when you double click on what they're talking about, they're talking about, and it just frustrates me. I just actually read a manuscript of somebody who wrote a book, what asked me to pre-read it. And there's this whole, you know, authenticity backlash in it. But when you see what they're talking about, they're saying things like a leader who chose to personally disclose some weaknesses that probably was an overshare. Or you chose to be your authentic self and give your authentic opinion about your boss's bad work. Or things like that. I'm like, those are not examples of authenticity. Those are examples of stupidity. Those are examples of somebody who couldn't read the room or somebody who had no sense of, didn't understand boundaries. Um, they're not wobbles of authenticity, of, of being too authentic. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, and you, if you look at the neuroscience about where those misses come from, somebody's trying to purchase intimacy with some level of vulnerability that's inappropriate, right? So, um, so all I have to say is I want to categorize authenticity as something that that is a level of self honesty about you know I'm not I can read the room and I can moderate and adjust how I how I speak how I how I come across. Um, depending on my audience, depending on what I'm trying to get done in the room, depending on who's in the room, for sure, within means. But th- there's mm-hmm. a point at which that level of modulation becomes chameleon-like, where now I'm actually play-acting. I'm sort of putting on the version of Ron I think you want to see, or putting on the version of Ron that thinks I'll get what I'm trying to get. And that's the line over which authenticity crosses into disingenuousness. And I can do it with mm-hmm. a smile. I can do it with a lot of polish. I can do it with a lot of flair and the appearance of authenticity. Um, but that's at some point that will come back to bite you. That's a really interesting uh, take on authenticity that I would tend to agree with. I really like that. That self-honesty is is so key to this. And, and the, it just gets me thinking that authenticity isn't something you do for someone else or do to someone else. It's something that you do for yourself or to yourself and, and, and are earnest about that. And the, the notion of like purchasing intimacy is another term. I like that. I haven't heard that before. And I think that's really interesting how people can try to manipulate under the guise of authenticity what ends up becoming the very opposite of what authenticity is really supposed to be, which like you described is, is being disingenuous. It's so, it's so interesting to think about how authenticity or this, this, uh, you know, layer of authenticity as a, as a mask actually creates the exact opposite of authenticity. And, and, and I could see where like, as, as it's, that word has been thrown around so much, how, it's become something that it's really not supposed to be. So that I, I find that very, that very interesting. And, and so it leads us to this, the, the question that I really want to ask you around. Um, you mentioned early in the conversation, how there are circumstances in which people have a tendency to start behaving in ways that are, um, you know, motivated more purely by self-interest or, um, you know, by by something that is an undesirable um, uh, approach or, or 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 behavior set compared to what the organization or what the the um, the overall um, desire and, and mission of of that collective group would be. Can you talk a little bit more about that, especially in light of what we we're just talking about with uh, authenticity? I'm I'm really curious about this. Well, you know, I think uh, let me see how I would answer that, Anthony. Um, so a lot to unpack in there. Uh, look, I think all of us, um, what we found in the research, to be honest, is that most self-interest uh, is really not for self-gain. It's really for self-protection, right? There's, a, there's another motive behind it. But when I ask leaders to think about their own honesty, and we define honesty, by, by the way, by, as truth, justice, and purpose. Today, you won't get labeled trustworthy for not li- just for not lying. You know, today, trustworthiness is a far higher bar to earn because our experience of it, if you just look around not too far, it's in a free fall. 
you know, the Atlantic wrote an article in the, a few months ago called, you know, we're, that we're in a trust recession. And so, you know, today it's about saying the right thing, doing the right thing, and saying and doing the right thing for the right reason, truth, justice, and purpose. So one of the ways we all have to face ourselves and be more honest is start with the places that bring us to our dishonesty. You know, the University of Massachusetts says that on average, we all lie about twice a day. If you, you know, and whether that's belying be your values or embellishing a piece of information for your boss's sake or withholding a piece of feedback you think is going to hurt somebody's feelings, quote unquote. If I were to ask anybody, any of your listeners to sort of look back over the last eight or 10 days of your life and t tell me about eight points in time where you were less than honest, whether it was you were snarky to... Uh, Starbucks barista, whether you ignored your kids, whether you saw a bunch of packages on the steps you, your spouse wanted you to carry upstairs and you just walked over them willingly, whether you you know told somebody to take a slide out of a deck because you were afraid it was going to hurt you from getting the budget you asked for, pick it. You will find an absolute pattern, right? These these will not be eight or ten random moments. You will see a very clear pattern of the of the kinds of conditions and context that bring you to your dishonesty. And if I were to ask you, how did you learn that? How did you learn that those choices in those situations were gonna meet some need you believed you had, e even though likely that wasn't the case, you would be able to, to identify that. That's learned behavior. Hmm. All of us choose our less than best self behavior when we believe we're threatened, when we believe we wanna engineer a certain response from somebody, when we're trying to avoid a certain response from somebody else, we want to be seen in a certain light. Um, and each of us has our collection of choices that are, you know, reflexive. They're not conscious um, that we that we don't even realize we're doing that we reach for in those kinds of moments. And if you want to level up your own sense of honesty, you first have to face those moments. So sometimes that's an authenticity issue. Sometimes it's a, I, I will not show people my true self. There are, there's part of me I keep hidden. There are part of me, you know, there's a big difference between being private and being secret. Mm -hmm. And we often like to excuse our secrets as if it, they're private. But the reality is our secrets will eventually, you know, catch up with us. Uh, the things we try and, you know, it's like holding sand in your hands at the beach. The harder you squeeze it, the faster it falls out of your hand. So uh, all I have to say is uh, all of us can do better. All of us have a place in our life where we're not showing up to be our, the best version of ourselves, where, where the trustworthiness we think we have earned, we actually haven't. We, we all take for granted the fact that, you know, hey, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't hurt people. I don't, I'm not a pathological liar. So why wouldn't they trust me? And my question is always, well, do you know why would they trust you? Just because you think they should doesn't mean they do. And if you are in a profession or if you want to be in any kind of serious relationship with anybody of meaning in your life, you cannot take your trustworthiness for granted. You have to do turn over all the rocks of any kind that could be impeding that. I, I, I had a um, client uh, last year who I had to bring feedback to. Uh, and and this, was a good, this was a good guy. He was smart, sharp. He was not, he was not one of the jerks. But his team had, he lost their trust. 
And I said, Do you, does it surprise you to hear that they, they've struggled to trust you? And he got really defensive. He said, well, how, how, how could they not trust me? I've never been dishonest with them. I'm transparent. I show them all, all the good and the bad and the ugly. I listen to their ideas. Um, I, I, I include them on decisions. I said, well, apparently there's these, these two behaviors uh, that are troublesome to them. Uh, well, there's probably more than that, but these are the two that came up. One is when you're in meetings and people are less than crisp and articulate or they're kind of struggling to make their point, you become dismissive and you cut them off. And other other cases, when you do, when you hear something that you aren't sure you agree with, you become sarcastic, a little bit mocking. What you have told people in those two behaviors is you're not safe. And he said, "What?" Well, he got again a little bit dismissive. And I said, "He goes, well, everybody has a bad day." I said, "Well, apparently you have a lot of them, and that's a perfect example of the fact that you think that that's what that is. The fact of the matter is, trust is in the eye of the beholder." And you have told people you are not a safe place for them to be imperfect. So you have told them, hide that stuff from me and bring me the finished goods. Well, what that means is that they're going to hide a lot of things from you. Mm -hmm. He would have never correlated those, what he would have assumed was like personality quirks, or he would have found some other category for them, but certainly not at, label them as trust impeding behaviors. Uh, but in fact, they were. And, and and I imagine that those behaviors then kind of to your, your statement around how this is, is learned behavior, the team then is effectively encouraged to be less trustworthy themselves because they're going to see that by acting that way or, or in other ways that are withholding intentionally, they're, that's how they need to operate in that environment. Is that is that what happens? Sure. You I mean, you're, you're training people all the time how to come to you, right? If, again, if you don't have people coming into your office on a regular basis, saying things that make you uncomfortable, you really have to ask yourself why. People are telling stories about you as their leader around their dinner tables every night. If you don't know what stories they're telling, you should want to get in on the conversation because they may not be great stories. Uh, you know, simple litmus, another simple litmus test, you know, take your values or your mission statement or your purpose statement, any of the promises your organization has made about its identity, bring them into the room of your team and say, how are we doing against these? How am I doing against these? Because what we know from the research is that if there's a say do gap between the promises you make and the behaviors, you're three times more likely to have people lie and cheat. Mm -hmm. uh, but if there's a, you know, a, a, a say-do alignment. If you are who you say you are, you're three times more likely to have people tell you the truth and behave honestly. Ask them. If somebody followed our team around with a video camera all day long and videotaped us, could they use that video as a training program to train people in these values? Hmm. That's an interesting thought. That, uh, that, like that, that, that really exposes it, right? Because now you're not just saying, here are the values and looking for evidence of it. You're now saying, okay, Here's our activities, and are you in alignment, or are you acting in alignment with what those um, values actually are? And so that that I could see how that would be really useful. I'm, I'm curious from your research, you know, it, it, kind of going back to the example that you had around uh, around the person who thought he had uh, personality quirks or, or what have you turned out to be a significant um, you know trust uh, challenge in, in terms of trustworthiness. How much of a 
how much of trustworthiness is based on action versus intent? So if I want to be a trustworthy person, I think that's a precondition to the actions and then the actions drive most of whether I really am. But I'm curious, like what, from your perspective, how did those balance or, or is one not as, I assume one's not as important, but. Well, uh, one is very dangerous. So we all assume that we're giving credit for our good intentions. Um, I intend to be trustworthy. I intend to be kind. I intend to be, you know, um, forthcoming with information. And nobody cares about your intentions. You don't. You do not get extra credit for good intentions, right? The, right. The, if your gap between intentions and impact is too wide, um, there's no hall pass for that. So it's all of our jobs to calibrate with feedback, with data, with reliable sources of of you know people who ha who have a front row seat to our to our behavior um that our impact matches our intentions um but but we often don't and it, it, it is so critical that we not just rely on our good intentions as the ultimate arbiter for how others experience us because they don't they can't read your mind and in fact, it's almost there's almost a reverse correlation, Anthony. A lot of times, people if they can't if they see if there's a behavioral gap between your intentions and your impact, they will re reverse engineer a set of attributions to the bad behavior that had nothing to do with what you thought. They'll make up a I mean, if they can't explain some bad behavior that you're displaying, they'll make up a reason for it and they'll attribute a motive to you that is far from who you are, and you might not ever find out. Yeah. That I, I could see exactly why that would that happen, and and I'm thinking I often myself look at that differential between what I would intend and what I wanted to have happen, or what I what I my set of expectations for myself, and then what I really did or what I really had. Where did I not live up to my own intent, or did I do something that was in misalignment with what is important to me from a values perspective? Because you can you're the only one who can see both your intent and your actions in perfect clarity, if you take the time to consider them both. Everyone on the outside can see your actions and has to infer your intent based on your actions. Uh, well, and, I, and the one caveat I would say from um, Astrid's point of view is um, uh, you, you have to be honest about your intentions and your actions, right? You mm -hmm. can see them clearly. Right. But you may not be honest about them, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And so you, it's it's one thing to sort of um, uh, compare and contrast them, but you have to take an honest look at um, at you know what did you, what what did you really want out of that experience, or what were you really trying to accomplish with that person? Why would it have blown up and gone sideways so badly? Right. Right. So we've, we've been talking about kind of like this micro level where we're talking about one person, one individual's intent, one team or what have you. And I think about how does how this expands to the context of an organization and whether an organization can be trustworthy. And like because I imagine any organization of, a, of any scale is going to have people that fall onto a continuum at different places of trustworthiness. What can an organization do? to promote being more trustworthy as an organization, or is that even a, a, a 
fallacy of a, of a concept. Can organizations be trustworthy? And then two, what should an organization do to be trustworthy if it's possible? Well, so the, the entire basis of our research, we're looking at systemic factors, right? So there are, we found four in the research that can predict whether or not an organization's trustworthiness will be strong or if they will be seen as untrustworthy. So one of them was be who you say you are. Make sure there's no say-do gap between the promises you make. One of them was accountability. If your accountability systems are seen as fair and just, you are four times more likely to have people be honest. But if people feel like the game is rigged, if they feel like their contributions are treated as you're a cog in a wheel, um, then you're four times more likely to have them be dishonest. Um, Decision-making, governance. People walk into meetings and they feel like uh, it's orchestrated theater that the decision was already made. And the last thing you want to hear from me is a dissenting point of view. You're three and a half times more likely to have people be dishonest. But if I walk into that room and I feel like there's a, a balanced point of view of the data, data being presented, that um, my healthy dissent is welcome. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people be honest. And lastly, cross-functional rivalries. If the seams of your organization are stitched well, and the healthy tensions between sales and marketing, supply chain operations are held well, and there's a place for that conflict to be um, resolved, you're six times, it's a huge influencer, six times more likely to have people be honest. But if there's border wars, if there's no health place for the healthy tensions to go, they have to go underground, and you have a lot of tribalism, a lot of we's and they's pointing fingers, and there's a lot of people in people's color ideas color IDs, whether making them go, oh, what do they want? Um, now you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest because now when you fragment the organization, you now fragment the truth. And now you have dueling truths, dueling data sets, right? My facts versus your facts. Um, so, and, and, it's, and it's cumulative, Anthony. So if you are good at all those things, you are 16 times more likely to have people show up to your organizations with a, with a notion of telling the truth and behaving fairly and serving a greater good. But if you suck at all of them, you are 16 times more likely to have, find yourself in the headline of a newspaper story you never wanted to be in. That is amazing. I mean, it, 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 it's, it makes so much sense as you break it down and relay it. But to have that kind of 16 times effect, that's an enormous impact yep. to ultimately the success of, of your organizations. And so we're just about out of time. And I know I've been just kind of peppering you with questions. We've been going down rabbit holes and, and, and tangents or whatever. Do you have anything else that like the audience should know based on some of the things that we've talked about today or, or other areas of, of work that you're doing? Is there anything else that you want to share or, or educate the, the audience on while, while we're still together this afternoon? Well, the one thing I, I want people to understand is that um, trustworthiness is a muscle. It's not a character trait. It's not something mm. we sprinkle pixie dust on and have or don't have. It's like going to the gym. You have to work at it every day. It's a muscle. You have to, to build it. And you, you, you shouldn't take it for granted. Right. Uh, you know, um, if you want to get a little bit of a teaser, come to the book's website, to be honest.net. We have a, a how honest is my team assessment. You can take a, a quick assessment about what's happening on, in the construct of your own group that you work in to see just how much of a skinny you're really getting. That's this is this is amazing. And, and, and I think. What's so exciting about the work that you do, and obviously you spend a lot of your time coaching and working with senior executives in very large organizations, but the lessons here are 
completely relevant to the small business owner, to the team leader, to the individual practitioner, to to everyone, uh, really everyone out there uh, can benefit from from understanding this and, and continuing to think about and, and researching uh, this particular uh, facet of, of data leadership and, and of just, you know, being an effective uh professional in in the workplace i think it, it's it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people so ron thank you so much uh for joining us today and, and sharing this wisdom it's it's been amazing anthony a pleasure thanks for having me and thank you all for joining us today as always you'll find more information about our guests and links in the show notes go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact <laughs>